0: Welcome everyone. I'm Aluba Phoenix. This is the Imagination, and today I am joined by Professor David Nutt, a world renowned neuropsychopharmacologist specializing in research of drugs that affect the brain and conditions such as addiction, anxiety, and sleep. Over the course of his career, Professor Nutt has acted as an advisor to the UK Ministry of Defense, the Department of Health, and the Home Office. In January 2008, he was appointed as chairman of the UK government's advisory council on the misuse of drugs having previously been its chair of the technical committee for over seven years he came in for much criticism by the government over his classification of the harmful effects of various drugs this eventually led in 2009 to his dismissal by the government from his position after he famously claimed that alcohol was a more harmful drug than many illegal drugs such as lsd ecstasy and cannabis Following this, Professor Nutt turned his attention to focus on creating a safer alternative to alcohol. And this led to the founding of Sentia Spirits, the world's first GABA spirit. GABA is a neurotransmitter in the brain that promotes relaxation, enhances communication and creativity. And Professor Nutt's innovation with Sentia has centered on creating a complex blend of all natural plant ingredients that impact the GABA system and so offer a responsible and safe alternative to alcohol. So um, as we enter the Yuletide season, when the alcohol is usually flowing, Um, And, of course, there are many harmful effects of alcohol. I'm delighted to have Dr. Um, Our our, professor with me today to really um, talk about this innovation and a little bit as well about, um, you know, maybe uh, what caused you initially to move in this direction. I'm always interested in people's backstory, David. So welcome so much to the podcast. I'm delighted you've made the time to be here. And maybe we could start there. Just if you could give us a little understanding of your own Backstory, and uh, you know what's taken you to this point today, where you've uh, you know launched this innovation into the world.
1: Well, actually, it's uh, I can date exactly the day and the time that I realized that alcohol was uh, a very interesting drug. Mm. My very first day at university. So, as they say, I'd gone up to Cambridge. I think it's probably about October the 9th, 1969, to my college, Downing College. And there were nine medical students all first year. We all caught up, you all arrived the same day. And what did we do that evening to get to know each other? We all went to the pub. And we sat in the pub and uh, after about three pints, I'd reached my limit and I was you know, a little bit uh, woozy. But the others, most of the others carried on. So I just sat with them and then the pub closed because in those days pubs had to close at 10:30 we're kicked out at 11 managed to get back into college because the college door, gate closed at 11 well, we got back into college and someone said hey I've got a bottle of wine so we went to a room and we sat in a student's room and and carried on drinking and I I was really not drinking very much but several were drinking quite a lot and then another bottle of wine came out and then by about 1 in the morning one of these new students, one of these friends of mine, he started crying absolutely unconsolably. He was wailing and crying and said he was going to die. And I thought, we better get an ambulance, better get an ambulance. And one of the other students who'd actually been at school with him, strangely, they'd come from the same school, luckily, I suppose, he said, No, he's always like that when he's drunk. <laughs> and I remember thinking, Hang on, hang on. Two hours ago, this guy was in a, you know, intelligent, articulate, He's, he's now a professor, by the way, I won't say, eventually got there. Uh, uh, and now he's he's a complete, you know, he's a kind of threat, a wreck, threatening suicide. I mean, how fascinating mm. is that? And mm. at that point, I thought, well, you know, that's interesting. And, of course, over the years, I've suffered from the consequences of getting very drunk on occasions and having problems you know, finding my way back to my room, you know, across the college courtyard, court, etc. So, So alcohol has had a personal effect, you know, thankfully not too dangerous but also as a doctor every day in in, in, almost every doctor finds every day someone who's got a problem with alcohol whether it's themselves being damaged by alcohol or whether it's someone in their family being damaged by someone who's drunk traffic accidents or violence etc so so alcohol is pervasive in medicine and uh, i spent most of my life trying to understand it to do something about it Fascinating.
0: I'm 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 really interested in the initial thought, which was one of curiosity, yeah, um, in relation to the impact, which is was quite interesting. And as as I say, you follow that thread throughout the course of your career, um, you know it is amazing, particularly in, in in Western culture, just how pervasive alcohol is, and, uh, as, as part of the overall culture. I mean, I grew up in Ireland, and I didn't really drink initially when I was growing up because I was a I was a sports person i was a martial artist and you know i was focused mm-hmm. on that um but it did mean that i was often on the outside looking in to so, to what was happening socially and and um, it was very very difficult initially for me to have a sense of belonging you know because yeah, yeah. you know and mm-hmm. uh, it, fe- it felt like it was different and eventually <laughs> i needed to surrender to in order to just become a part of what was the culture um and make connections and social interactions so you know we kind of swim in the in 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 it as in in the western culture we certainly did previously might be maybe it's changing a bit now but when i was growing up that was certainly
1: the case um you know it's not changing that much and and of course i think you've hit on the the reason why alcohol is still so popular i mean it is the most popular drug uh by far in almost all the countries in the world apart from the islamic countries and even there it's, it's more popular than than people would let on and it's popular because it does what you described it it's a social social a drug which allows people to socialize without fear of embarrassment or or, or uh, anxiety so True. it's an extraordinarily powerful device for getting people to come together and there's this theory that that's actually uh, why humans have come to dominate the uh, the world because uh, apart from the fact we've got a large, larger brain than other um, primates, we also are very, very social. Right. Um, there was a theory a few years ago, I don't know if you remember that famous book uh, by uh, Johan Hariri um, about trying to understand uh, the nature of humanity. And he came up with the theory that um, human culture largely developed when we stopped being nomadic and we started planting wheat to make mm. bread. Now there's another another anthropologist, American anthropologist, uh, Singerland, who says no, 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 no. The planting of wheat was to make beer, not to make bread. <laughs> so, so, alcohol underpin, you know, the production of alcohol may have underpinned the whole uh, transition from nomadic to agricultural lifestyle, which then, of course, allowed people time to do all the other things they needed to learn to do, like read and write and create, etc.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, I, I remember, um, *The Sapiens* I think was Ferrari's book, wasn't it? Um, *Sapiens*, that's right, *Sapiens*. Yes. Yeah, I remember amusing in the book as uh, whether it was humans who had domesticated wheat, or it was the wheat who had actually domesticated us in order to it spread itself <laughs> across the planet.
1: That's <laughs> the wonder. That is the wonder of alcohol. It benefits everyone. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Even the plants that make it yeah so i mean it's
0: interesting that we have started talking about it, it, its benefits right because you know harmful effects aside there are there are benefits of, of of being able to engage in a responsible way that you know brings people together and you know creates that sense of uh, connection and bonding and i guess in many ways it can also be a medicine as well right because it's um when it comes to things like sore throats or whatever like that as well has been used for centuries maybe a drop of whiskey or whatever to, to kill the bacteria so there, one mm-hmm. of yes. these have harmful yeah. effects, there, there is also positive uh, elements to their use as well, right?
1: Undoubtedly, I mean, it, alcohol would not have continued to play such a prominent role in most societies, as it has probably since the beginnings of humanity. We can trace back at least 40,000 years the culture of, uh, of brewing or fermenting uh, initially honey and then subsequently wheat to, to, to make drinks and then subsequently, of course, um, grapes, it wouldn't have survived, especially in the modern era where where most other technologies have been disrupted, if it didn't have some benefits. And the benefits are really profound in in the terms of socialization. Uh, But before then, of course, there were other benefits. You've touched on the health benefits, but one of the biggest health benefits, in fact, perhaps the reason alcohol uh, persisted for so long in medieval and middle ages is because it was the only safe thing to drink. Most mm-hmm. water supplies were contaminated by basically excrement on other animals or humans. Whereas, if you took relatively, you know, unclean water from a from a lake or from a river and then you use it to ferment um, sugars with yeast and make beer, you ended up killing the bugs. Mm-hmm. So until about the 1830s 1840s in the uk most people drank what was called small beer which was about two to three percent alcohol and that was what they drank because it was set a lot safer than drinking water mm,
0: mm, yeah absolutely so i mean obviously it's persisted there are lots of benefits and at the same time you know uh, huge huge societal impacts uh, when you know people overindulge. um um, I, you know, you reflected that, you've been a doctor, you've seen, you know, many cases come through, um, you, know, you know, that you've worked on. I'm, I mean, I've lost friends, very good friends through overindulgence in alcohol, um, you know, and I've seen it impact members of my family and, and, and just, in, you know, in society in general in terrible ways. But tell us a little bit just about how harmful it actually can be, because I think sometimes because it's so pervasive in society, um and because so many people are, you know, familiar with its benefits, we often underestimate just how harmful it actually can be on our system. So can you talk a little bit more about the real harmful effects of alcohol?
1: Well, it's something we underestimate, but we choose to ignore because we like the good effects, you know. I just I just to throw in just to kind of finish that anecdote I started with. Hmm. Of those nine medical students. One of them killed himself on the road, he was a very impulsive, and he killed himself on the road learning to drive without taking, basically not listening to the instructor, he killed himself and the instructor on the road. The guy that told me not to worry, the other student's always like that when he's drunk, he died in his 30s of alcoholism. <sighs> Extremely talented man, and a qualified doctor, died mm-hmm. of, and the one who did have that breakdown ended up having serious problems with alcohol through his life, but yet he came through it in the end. Uh, and survive but so we it's we about one in ten one in eight people who drink get into serious problems and those problems are either mental problems independence and behavioral problems or their physical problems like heart disease or cirrhosis or cancer or you know often a combination of both mm. and is 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 it something in this to do with the impact on the
0: system for it Individuals that can be different, so you know, because I we always say in, in Ireland, uh, maybe because we've drunk so much that uh, you're able to hold it, <laughs> you know, rather than, than maybe other cultures who are not. And at the same time, we've got such terrible problems with alcohol in, in Ireland as well because overuse. But, but but tell us a little bit about the difference with individual systems and um, how that impacts the experience. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So the, well, that's a huge question. Let me just, I'll just focus on a couple. Let's just focus on the brain one of the most interesting discoveries in recent years is that uh, you can inherit tolerance to alcohol so that before you ever drink you're pre-tolerant and and that comes down the the paternal line so okay. the sons of alcoholics sons of male alcoholics very often are less affected when they first start drinking and then they become heroes <laughs> everyone else is on the floor vomiting and they're saying hey you know and they the problem with that is that they then end up drinking more because they don't get the negative effects and they end up eventually getting the other kinds of damage which is damage to the to the you know liver or to the gut or to the or to the um, to the heart to the blood pressure etc mm. we don't really know a great deal about uh, the individual variations in terms of things like cirrhosis It's completely paradoxical There are people who get cirrhosis and there are people who don't get cirrhosis. There's almost no research done on that, by the way. Um, Of all the medical illnesses that exist, liver-related diseases are among the least studied. If you go go into a a department of hepatology, liver specialists in any major hospital, 80% of their workload is due to alcohol. And 20% is due to other things like viruses, mm-hmm. and then if you look at the research spend on um, liver disease, 80% is either on viruses or or some kind of autoimmune disease, and 20% on on alcohol. So yeah, it's complete uh, inverse. Of the, the problem is enormous, and the and the, and the um, investment is really trivial, way below what's necessary. So we don't understand. We don't understand why some people can not get cirrhosis and other people get it and die very rapidly from it isn't it
0: fascinating when you know the evidence points in one direction and yet all the energy and effort tends to move in an opposite yes. direction um, um and, yes. and you know that as a pattern obviously is something um that has been quite prominent in in, in some of your career as well i mean uh I, I was fascinated by your story when you know you were with the advisor and misuse of drugs to, to the government and then suddenly you know having prevented presented the evidence, right, and advocating for an evidence-based approach politically, <laughs> you were moved aside, um, which must have been a very um, interesting experience to be on, on on the end of that and I'm just curious a little bit about, you know, how was that experience and what did you learn as well about leadership, you know, during your time as an advisor to the government?
1: Yes, well, um, I suppose I learned a few things. The first is that just sticking with the alcohol topic to start with, challenging alcohol or challenging the, the the role of alcohol in our society, particularly in relation to politics, is a very dangerous thing to do. <laughs> because, I mean, I don't know. I think there are seven bars in Parliament, <laughs> and they, <laughs> they they all serve very subsidised drink. Because, you know, we're the only I think probably the only country in the world where you can actually go from a bar to make a decision you know, to vote on a major act of government, which, you know, you can be drunk uh, and making a decision as to whether we go to war, you know, that's, mm. uh, there's some great historic examples, by the way, and I think my favorite is, is Pitt the Younger, who apparently <laughs> tried to give a speech, he was so sick, he had to vomit behind the speaker's chair because he was so drunk. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, it is kind of, it is weird that we, we celebrate even at the highest levels of decision making in this country, intoxication, mm-hmm. um, and um, that probably underpin- explains quite a lot of why we don't get very good decisions from uh, from our government. So that so the drinking is part of that culture the, of the of the political culture, uh, and there's a, a very clever way in which the drinks industry twists information about the value of our gold because actually they don't particularly promote the sociability side of it what they say is oh it's a really wonderful way of bringing money to the exchequer okay. and look we benefit we can create lots of jobs and uh, and we get paid lots of taxes the governments say yeah that's great um uh, and if you were to change uh, the taxation you know you'll lose money and um, and I was arguing, well, look, yes, you actually you would lose a bit of money in the short term, but it would actually be offset very rapidly by the health gains.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But yeah you know, the the drinks industry continually pours um, uh, sort of opposite uh, opinions into politicians. and it, I mean, you may not know this. I didn't know this until one of my students was invited to Parliament a few years ago because he was he just left university became a doctor. and one of his friends from university was now um, was now in a, a SPAD working in government. Mm-hmm. and He said, come yes. to the party. He said, what party? He said, come to the party. And they went off and uh, he had a look around Westminster. And, then, and the, that was that Friday afternoon, four o'clock, out on this wonderful terrace so there's a water, there's this terrace that overlooks the Thames, which they use for their celebrations. There was a party funded by Diageo. And he said, it was amazing. It was just free booze from four o'clock. But what mm-hmm. was staggering about it was A, everyone was there I mean I'm not sure about the Lib Dems and the Greens but all the it was both Tories and Labour he said mm-hmm. I saw <laughs> he said I saw I saw a Labour um, minister with five um acolytes come in and they sat they just sat down and they drank about five pints from between about four thirty to 6 and then they all wandered off and he said to his friend he said well this is is this is this for Christmas or something he said no 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 they do it every two weeks wow, wow. and the other thing that really clever thing about this is that it wasn't just politicians because senior editors from all the broad seats were there. So you had this collusion drinks industry, make sure that the people who run the media and the people who run the country are all on side about booze. Mm. So so that's, that's one of the things I learned. And of course, that was why, you know, challenging, um, the, the idea that, you know, we should treat alcohol as a drug. You know, that was why I got sacked because in fact, until my sacking, it wasn't the government didn't concede that alcohol was a drug afterwards the person that replaced me was a another pharmacologist said look you know we can't do the you've got to accept it's a drug you know I mean? I mean, come on guys you know so at least we've now you know we do assess the harms of alcohol in the same way as mm-hmm. we assess the harms of other drugs we just don't do anything about the findings um, yeah that's it's it's so interesting and uh, do you think that um
0: it, it it was a case that it, it was just fi- you know uh, financial um, influence that was at play, or do you think it's a case that people actually believed that it wasn't a drug and that it wasn't as harmful as it is? And I'm just curious, because I know obviously you know you, you hear a story long enough, you you know you can actually believe it, right? Um, what do you think was at play? Do you think it was more influence, or do you think it was more actual? This is what you know, just changing of belief systems is what's
1: required here. I think people have never thought about it before.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: I. I, I when I give lectures to my students I say do this experiment I say you know I, I got I've got a wonderful slide which is an American slide it says say no to drugs that way you will have more time to drink <laughs> brilliant,
0: brilliant.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I say to my students okay now look is alcohol a drug and of course they're all medical students or scientists they say yes they say right now Go home this Christmas and speak to your granny or your granddad and say, Granny, is that is alcohol a drug? And I, I say, I bet what she'll say is, what are they teaching you at Imperial College these days? And you say, no, no, seriously, granny, you know, do you think alcohol is a drug? Of course, it's not a drug. You know, I mean, and you say, well, what, it must be a drug because why else would you drink it because it makes you happy. And if you don't bit too much, you might even get a headache or fall over. And the granny will say, if it was a drug, it would be illegal. An illegality paradox is what has been cultivated. Well, basically, I tell you, when it started, it really started 1923 with the U.S. prohibition of alcohol. Mm -hmm. At that point, the drinks industry said, "Hang on, we've got to play this a bit smarter because we're uh, we've lost the debate in America. Also, it was banned in uh, Norway, uh, Sweden, Finland. You know, the drinks industry began to think we've got to play it differently. So, so they've started." arguing that alcohol isn't a drug and in fact it's a it's a social lubricant and it's a lubricant and it's a, a source of income etc so they've managed to sort of dissemble quite cleverly over the last hundred years mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah no
0: it's interesting and, and also fascinating in the context that we're seeing across the world today with you know many other drugs which would have been illegal like cannabis for example suddenly now becoming you know legal in many places And germany recently making it legal as well you know so it's um it is interesting to see how something can be, you know, deemed illegal one moment, and then suddenly it's okay the next moment. You know.
1: <laughs> well, absolutely. I mean, and, and that you you highlight the actual crux of the argument I've been making really for the last thirty years, which is that you know you can you can have a rational approach to drugs and drug harm. You can you can approach it in a scientific way. You can you can use technology. We call it multi-criteria decision analysis. It's a really sophisticated form of um decision making around you can use it for anything but Mm. using it for drugs gives you some really powerful leverage and what what's interesting is that the technique has been used to look at the benefits of drugs for in the european medicines agency for instance
0: Mm. so
1: it's how how now drugs are evaluated they they have a benefit assessment and a risk assessment and you compare the two but we still won't do it for for um for illegal drugs or recreational drugs and that's purely political, there's no, there's no question it's in. politics, drugs, being being hostile about drugs is a useful political tool uh, and particularly if the drugs are used by young people who don't vote because there's no mm. downside to abusing them or banning them or locking up the kids. So it's uh, almost all the drug laws are politically driven. Very few of them have any serious basis in, in, in what you might call the science of harm reduction
0: yeah and of course that raised the question how many other of our political decisions take the same approach where we have evidence and we choose not to take an evidence-based approach even when there are models of societies that do and see the benefit i mean i've been living in portugal now and i'm just making a full-time move there and of course their policy is very different to the uk and um the you know the evidence of the success of that policy um, is there to see yeah, so it's 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 very interesting when there are models that you know even at that stage. Well,
1: absolutely. I mean, can I just thank you for raising the Portuguese example? So it was almost twenty years ago now. Portugal decided to decriminalise the personal possession of all drugs, all illegal drugs, and they did it for commercial and economic reasons. Their prisons were filling up with um, drug users. Their hospitals were filling up with people with AIDS and Hep C and uh, and people were dying mm. so they completely th- threw the switch and everyone who uses drugs now gets put into treatment mm. uh, and uh and in that in those t- in that time we have 15 year data which was probably about two years ago on the portuguese experiment and if you just look at the look at deaths from opiates which is a, you know the drugs most likely to kill you they reduced opiate deaths in portugal to one-third of what they were when they started 17 years ago, so in the same time in Britain, particularly after the Cameron government took over, mm. we doubled deaths from heroin. Hmm. So you've got a classic, you've got you know, you can see that the two policies have produced completely divergent responses. Yeah. And there's no justification whatsoever for, for using criminal sanctions against drug users. Not only does it lead to more harm, but it also it actually wastes more money because. Well, they did, they wanted to close prisons in Portugal, because <laughs> if you don't put people in prison, you don't need prisons. You know, if you free people, they stop using drugs. But the real the real winner here is if you every time you stop a person being a drug addict, you reduce all the people they were selling to. So you begin to eat away at that pyramid of of user dealers. that actually creates such a created the market in the first place.
0: Yeah yeah no it's fascinating and it does raise as i said lots of other questions in terms of you know how decisions are made in general and and how not just for plenty expedient reasons but how we can actually be used to uh, demonize certain individuals within certain communities as well but i think that's probably another topic david and we could spend a lot of time on that i yeah. i would shift us back to uh, your innovations um in 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 this field with um sentia and uh, you know specifically the work that you've done to bring these amazing products to the market that work on the the gaba uh, neurotransmitter system so there's some of the effects of alcohol there but without the the negative consequences so can you talk a little bit first all, about the neuroscience you know talk a bit about the GABA system and you know and, and how alcohol uh, impacts it but also then
1: you know with your innovation what what what's kind of different yeah mm, sure so again if I if I can just discourse a little bit on my life hmm? from that very first day in medicine I've really been intri- intrigued by alcohol and, and as soon as I became a researcher which was around about 1979. I started researching the brain mechanisms of alcohol. And in fact, from 79 to about 2004, almost well, a lot of my research was trying to reduce the harms of alcohol by finding antidotes, by finding treatments to stop people in withdrawal, by looking for treatments to stop craving and relapse. And in 2004, when I was still um, popular with the government, uh, I was on a, basically what in those days we called the Department of Trade and Industry, they had a, an annual program and he, that, this, that particular year, it called the foresight program, that particular year they asked me to lead the program look, as a doctor looking at how brain science could affect addiction over the next 25 years. And that was quite a privileged thing to do because you actually got a lot of time to think and, and talk to other experts and during that the course of that uh, report writing and gathering ev- evidence We had brainstorming sessions and during one of those brainstorming sessions i kind of realized that alcohol is such a complicated and promiscuous drug it was it would be impossible actually to find antidotes to all the effects because it works on so many different systems and then we started brainstorming and said well hang on why don't we just replace it and that's what i've been trying to do for the last 20 years now Mm. And, and the way we've approached it is look alcohol works We know at least eight transmitters in the brain it affects, but it probably affects them all in high enough doses. Mm. Why don't we find out which transmitter gives you the the effects you want, the good effects, and target that. And that way we would avoid all the other effects we don't want, because we don't want hangovers, we don't want aggression, we don't want dependence, we don't want withdrawal. Uh, And we now know that, you know, that those are mediated through different neurotransmitters to to the GABA system the GABA system is what alcohol targets when you the first drink the first half a you know the first mouthful gets the gets in the brain and it starts to tickle up the GABA system and it chills you out it relaxes you it takes away that anxiety that we all have when we're meeting strangers or even meeting people you know meeting meeting family we haven't seen for a while and we just want to we want to you know lubricate those interactions and take away some of the tension and that's 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 alcohol enhancing GABA so mm. we thought well okay let's try to do that then shall we make an artificial alcohol that works on the GABA system and and we're doing that and we're inventing molecules small molecules that do that but that turned out actually to be a quite challenging and also taking a, a new small molecule through food safety testing to get it approved as a drink that's a lot of money, I mean, we haven't raised that money yet, we're in the process of doing it, but that gets millions and millions of, of, of pounds. Mm-hmm. So, on, so a few years ago, we thought, or well, at least my my partner, uh, David Oran, who's um, the businessman in my in the company, uh, Gabba Labs, he said, well, hang on, why don't we see if we can find something in nature that would do the same, and, uh, and then we might have a product which we, we could start using to help people understand mm-hmm. the concept, and also, you know, prove the concept, and maybe help raise more money. So I set a couple of my team on this um, this challenge. Go out into the, the whole of the botanical world, search through Ayurvedic medicine, search through Chinese herbal directories, search through ancient medieval texts on uh, pleasurable, relaxing drinks that they used to be made in the Middle Ages. And there's an enormous literature of uh, herbs and foodstuffs which actually people use for relaxation and so we basically set up an, an enormous database on all those and we looked through it and we picked out the ones that we could say we're working on the GABA system and then we created this cocktail of Centia which is uh, essentially three components There's a there's a, a number of the herbs in Centia actually produce substances which we know from other people's science work on the GABA system and then we put into the mixture other herbs to facilitate the uptake of those first herbs into the body yeah, and also facilitate those substances getting into the brain. So it's a sort of three-step process. Great. And then we got together with uh, Vanessa, who's a wonderful mixologist, to produce uh, uh, this beautiful flavor. And uh, and now we're selling it. And people are saying, yeah, well, it works. And um, and we like it. And uh, this is an alternative. This is the first functional alternative to alcohol, really.
0: Fantastic. I love the alchemy of it all. <laughs> And um, t- t- tell us a little bit how it works. So you said it's a functional alternative. So what what what's the effects that an individual would experience um that are similar, but also what what what's different? Yeah, you said there's no hangovers, etc. But us a little bit about what what the
1: experience is like. You know, in terms of its similarities and differences to alcohol. So what people what people report when they drink Samsa? I mean, obviously there's a taste. The taste we've designed it to be quite a sophisticated. It's quite a rich taste. Some people love it. I was. Uh, Took it to a, uh, a a kids party the other day, and to give to some of the parents, and uh, and some one of them, well, he was a Lebanese guy. He said, "Wow, this is fantastic! You just drink, I just drink it neat. This reminds me of a drink." It was actually it's really popular in uh, in in the Middle East. And I said, well, that's mm. fantastic! You know, drink it neat if you want, but most people uh, find that the taste uh, they prefer it to in you know with a with a mixer like tonic or apple juice or orange juice." Mm. So then you drink it and and the, and the herbs go into your stomach and then uh, the ingredients these, these molecules that plants make uh, which work on the GABA system get across your gut so they go into your blood they go into your brain and then they actually start to enhance GABA in the brain so it's important to realize that GABA is an absolutely vital neurotransmitter it's mm. it's the actually it's, it's the, if you think of the brain as being a kind of computer it's the off switch and then the the very close relative of GABA is called glutamate that's the on switch Mm. and they're in perfect they're in a perfect balance in the normal states you know glutamate is driving you and keeping you awake and and GABA is just making sure that you're going at the right speed so an an interesting analogy is in driving you know you've got glutamate is the accelerator Mm -hmm. uh, and GABA is the brake okay there's there's always GABA there it's always if GABA if GABA goes. You're in dead. You know you're dead because you would have seizures and and, and you get very, very anxious, etc. So GABA's there. And so what we do is we make GABA just a little bit more effective, and and that's important. And it's particularly important in social situations because when you move into a social situation, there is always a degree of anxiety. Mm. And attenuate and You can reduce that anxiety by boosting GABA a little bit. Okay. But, oh. And that's all we do. Whereas alcohol, if you alcohol does that but if you start drinking more then it starts to release dopamine and dopamine is an energizing let's go moreish transmit anyone who's taking cocaine knows you know you've, you got a real buzz but then 20 minutes later you want some more and you get into that cycle mm. and that's part of the dependence producing effects of alcohol through dopamine uh, and then alcohol also reduces endorphins you know the runner's high and mm. you know, and that's one of one of the reasons people get addicted to alcohol because they get addicted to the endorphin rush and then if you push it again Then you get into real trouble because then alcohol blocks glutamate and i explained a minute ago You need glutamate to keep you up and working and awake mm-hmm. and to let down memories mm. When you start to block glutamate and that comes in at about you know twice the drink driving limit about 150 milligrams per cent. When you get to that point you start to get blackouts mm. And then eventually if you keep on drinking, you will go into coma and then you will die. And uh, so, you know, alcohol has a very complicated dose response relationship. Whereas Zentia basically, whatever much you drink, you're only going to just relax yourself a bit and, uh, and then it's going to disappear and you're going to be fine. Fantastic. So it slows you down. It,
0: it as I said, um... You know, it allows you to put the foot on the brake but without the reward chemical that's dopamine without the as i said the opiates there which are the addictive quality and and without then getting into some of the more dangerous effects that can come exactly. from from overindulgence yeah 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 and how long well, does then- the effect last then as well so you you, you know you you have this slow down how long
1: does it last before it starts to wear off well about half an hour most people say the effect there for a, for a, it comes on a, a bit like alcohol quite quickly we wanted it to come on quite quickly that's why we put into the into the cocktails, into the drink, herbs Mm. to accelerate the uptake. Because people, when you drink, people want an experience. I mean, when you drink alcohol, actually, you start to get an effect as you anticipate drinking, because you like the taste. And then, of course, it burns down the back of your throat and people say, wow, you know, that's great. So we wanted it to come on quite quickly. So it comes on 10, 15 minutes, Begin to get, some people get that little sort of relaxation here, that sort of sense of flushing, a bit like alcohol, not everyone. And then peaks at about 10, 15, 20 minutes, and then it wears off after about half an hour. And then, and that's really good because that's much faster. Alcohol, it takes an hour to get rid of a unit of alcohol. Mm. And that's one of the reasons alcohol is a dangerous drug, is it? You can, you can actually not realize you're impaired the next morning. A lot of you know, people do have accidents in the morning and then they're eyes is there? They're well yeah. over the limit. So yeah. getting rid of it, getting sentient out of the body quickly means that you basically back to normal within okay. half an hour or so. Okay. And and what would it mean then for things like,
0: you know, because you obviously when you're when you're drinking, you can't drive. What does it mean with senti Would it be the same? Would you have to
1: wait for that half an hour, or 45 minutes or so before you can drive? Or how does that work? Yes, yes Very much well, we haven't done studies, but it absolutely it's it's quick. I mean you shouldn't drive if you're impaired in any way. I mean you you may not know this, but it's, it's worth sharing if you know if you get the flu or a, a severest dose of uh, COVID, you are as impaired driving as if you're at the drink driving limit of 80 million so, wow. you know, really Anything that impairs you or well, changes your brain does tend to impair your driving. So just be, be, be clear about that. Mm-hmm. okay that's well, that's. i hadn't realized that that's a good
0: thing to be aware of, particularly this time of the year as well when you know drink driving is obviously on people's minds but maybe not you know driving when you've got the flu which a lot of people also have at this time of the year so it's a, it's a good shout out yeah um i'm curious about contraindications right so obviously not everything is is, is going to be uh right for every person right uh, for everyone's system is different etc are there any specific contraindications for for people um who when it comes to um
1: sentiientdo well, we recommend uh, pregnant women don't drink it. I mean, although these herbs have been around for millennia, and they're all, everyone, every herb in Sendia is approved either as a food or as a food supplement. Mm-hmm. You know, the the combination has not been given to to, to people before, so it, you know, we, we can't say it's safe. So we, we would recommend that people who are pregnant or are going to get pregnant probably don't drink it. Uh, but just be aware, obviously, the same is absolutely true for alcohol, and there is good evidence for the harms of alcohol. And mm-hmm. then there are people who might be allergic to any of the ingredients. I mean, it's, we've had a few customers say, "Well, I, you know, I did have a strange sort of feeling in my mouth." And some of the herbs can be—you know—people can be oh, people can be allergic to anything. So there's, a, there's, there's that possibility. Um, it contains licorice, and there are some people who may be quite sensitive to licorice. If you've got very high blood pressure, for instance which won't be a good thing i don't think there's enough to really probably affect people but you know we people ask about this and we tell them what what's in it i think if you again i should specify we recommend uh 100 mils a day as as, as with to stay within the uh the food safety limits oh okay okay
0: okay good good well that's uh, i think it's always important to understand because as with anything you know it's good until it's not so it's uh 100 patients are yeah um Maybe you might shift a little bit, and I'd I'd like to talk more generally, if it's okay, uh, um, um, David. Around, you know, you you've you've had this fantastic career as a a research scientist. You've done some incredible work as an advisor to government, and now you 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 know a real entrepreneur and innovator in in kind of fields. So you've you've experienced leadership in many different contexts, and I'm curious as to you know. What do you, for yourself, understand as some of the most important elements of leadership across those different contexts? You know, through the experiences that you have, what have you seen that have, you said this is this is really important from a leadership perspective? Yeah,
1: yeah. I think the, the overarching message is build a strong team. Mm. Get a team around you that understand what you're trying to do and probably understand it. Understand it as scientists. Look, I mean, I can have scientific ideas, but they stopped me going near the lab bench 40 years ago. <laughs> you know, they wanted to do the experiment. <laughs> you know, there's, mm. a, there's a technical aspect and there's a sort of intellectual aspect and technical things need to be done properly. So it's best to get people that can do those exactly right. Um, mm. But, also, and, and trust them, I mean, and, you know, make sure that they're empowered. So I'm a very non-directive. I used to, when I was a professor at uh, Bristol University, the, the, the um, my deputy used to say, David's a perfect anarchist.
0: <laughs> you know, he allows
1: everyone to fulfil their own ambitions and and talents, and and that works. You know, it's like that if you get the best out of people, giving them the ability to you know the, the opportunity to do what they're good at. Yeah. Well, that's obvious. I mean, it's kind of self-evident, isn't it? But but uh, so I'm you know I'm I'm, I'm, a, I'm a total facilitator, and actually doing that. You know, that's in, an interesting aspect. So that's, for ten years when I was working with the Home Office trying to make sense of drug policies by being open minded. We, we brought other people in, it told us how to do it better. Mm. Uh, so, um, this multi criteria decision analysis that was a that, you know, someone wrote to me a guy, a guy from LSE, Larry Phillips, who said, Oh, by, <laughs> it was wonderful, <laughs> yeah, wonderful email. He said, David, you know, what you're doing is quite interesting because we published a paper in uh, 2007 in the Nansen on mm. harms of drugs. And he said, That's really interesting, David, but there's this new technique we can do. and and I'd never heard of it. But when I met him, I realized it was very powerful. And it was that's a fascinating technique because it, that he previously just finished using it to help uh, the government decide what to do with nuclear waste. Okay. Now that's a serious political hot potato as well. And it turns out that you, you can use this technique. And yet, and it's, it, this MCDA approach is very powerful because it allows you to compare and consider every different Aspect or dimension of a decision, mm-hmm. uh, and then uh, you know, nuclear waste, a lot of issues there. You know, mm-hmm. do you bury, it, do you put it on ground, do you send it into space. You know, how do you deal with local communities? You know, all, how do you deal with the, with the practicalities versus the radioactivity, etc.? So, he spent mm-hmm. several years doing that and and came to the conclusion, and everyone agreed in the end. You know, it, it's deep underground burying into sort of the glass chambers. So He said, mm-hmm. let's try, let's try this with um, with drugs and and drug harms. Uh, and it's a fantastic process because you, until you've done it, use MCTA, you actually, you don't really know what you don't know. Mm. And of course, this is one of the big problems with decision-making in politics. They think they know everything, but mm. but in reality, they don't know. They really don't know and they don't care about what they don't know. Whereas mm. if you do take a, a problem and, and, and uh, disambiguate it into all the, the in, individual questions, then you can attack each one. So so with drug drug harms, there are it, We had a whole conference, a weekend conference, working out what were drug harms and and what kinds of drug harms that you you could, what different kinds there were. It turns out there were 16 ways drugs can harm you. Mm. 16. I mean, most people think of, well, you know, you just get cancer or you die. But in reality, there's all the social harms, you know, the the social disruption, the deforestation of, uh, you know, in Peru and Brazil and Colombia, Mm. you know, trying to get rid of cocaine. the, the international problems as economic you know there's a huge number of variables which mm. you have to take into consideration to deal with a, a complex problem uh, like drugs or nuclear waste and this is a fa- fabulous way of doing it and in yeah. fact it's it's become such a it's become now the, the the definitive approach my one of my legacies is that the home office still uses it to make decisions about new drugs <laughs> the only mm. difference is sorry the acmd the committee i was on uses it the only the reality so now it's still being used but the government still ignores the results.
0: Still ignores but, the results.
1: Yeah. But in industry, but in you know in industry sensible people wouldn't wouldn't do that. They would actually look at it, look at the results and actually, you know, um orchestrate their decision making around them. Well I, I think one of the things that's very interesting for me is and I just want to mark
0: this because it, it you mentioned that you know the, the politicians don't care, right? <laughs> really about what the result whereas that when you do care how care can then become a doorway into greater humility greater curiosity and inviting others into the conversation more openness yeah um and then really trusting as you say the wisdom of the system um you know that something will will emerge from that um but it it, it does strike me how really caring right about the outcomes uh, is is something that i think or or maybe the question is i'm sure politicians do care about some things what do you really care about yeah mm. and why and why is that important yeah
1: yeah my experience and having spent 10 years rubbing shoulders with politicians but like i think in the pecking order of politicians cares are one get re-elected <laughs> two gen in general appease the media mm. and then three if you can after that do what's right <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that brings me to Go ahead. I think it's a really interesting point you raise, actually, and it's just, just to be a bit more serious about it. It's um, and I've seen this. I've, I've seen this in in the NHS and I've seen it. Uh, I actually left the NHS about six years ago because mm. the NHS stopped me doing the right things for my patients it actually they basically said look you know we don't like you know you're you're innovating and we don't like innovation we we want you we want you to do what we tell you to do and this was, i've watched this pattern since well, since i was a medical student i first mm-hmm. started working in a hospital in uh, 1973 And I was talking to the manager of the hospital and it was a psychiatric hospital in London it has been destroyed now, it's executive flats. But and he was saying things are changing, you know, things are changing. I now I have run this hospital for the last 20 years as the chief executive uh, with the help actually of my wife. And we ran the hospital. He said, now it's changed. Now we have a committee to do every single thing we do is run by a different committee. And then those committees have to get together, and uh, and then we have to make a decision. I and mean, it actually, it's become extremely cumbersome. And that was in, as I would say, nineteen seventy-three. And of course, it's got worse. We have quadrupled the number of managers in in the health service in that time, and we haven't increased the number of doctors hardly at all. Uh, and and all, what you now have people in running the NHS who are essentially uh, been brought in from other companies. We don't right. have either any really understanding of healthcare, and certainly no empathy with the. The people who are actually providing the care and that's that's really ends up with being you know you end up being given directives rather than being given support and so many doctors are leaving and and, and particularly young doctors that just say i can't cope with this anymore you know we're not pieces of machinery and nor are our patients you know we actually are human beings if we if we're treated humanely we can do, be much better at doing what we do so yeah. you know, so having people that really care about what the final goal is rather than just care about the uh, the spreadsheet i think critical
0: I, I hugely and and i also believe that that actually is the future for a lot of the real work that we're going to have to do as humans because with ai coming along a lot of the jobs we do are going to go away and what are the what are the things that ai can't replace it's those caring professions it's That's like cool. human ability to hold each other you know we we <laughs> In the shelter of each other that we all live it's a very Irish expression, you know. But that, thats that—that that is the truth. And and you know, do we really want? What do? How do we want to be together in in community? And and, and what's important for us as a, you know, in, in order for the, you know, for everyone to have a sense of being of being held and being supported, etc. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm.
0: So I, I guess that brings me on to my final question, David. This is a question I ask all of my guests on the podcast, and um, it, it's more of a macro question. Uh, you know, we live in a world where there's lots of change. I mean, you may say that's always the case, but there's a lot of change and uncertainty at the current moment in time, and leadership is always most important when there is change and uncertainty. Uh, I'm curious, um, when you reflect on on, on everything today, what's, what's your greatest hope for
1: leadership in the world today? I suppose it's, it's rather... Um, obvious given it, we're now coming up to Chris, it's got to be peace, hasn't it? Mm. It's got to be peace. And um, I think we have to understand, surely we have to understand it. what we've been doing up till now has actually driven us away from peace and, and mm. the, 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 the polarization of even rational s- s- countries, which are, you know, well, I mean, you know, let's this cut, this cut to the chase. Brexit, what a stupid mm. decision. I just come back last week, I was in I was in a, a science conference in, in in Rome and you just see how much we have lost. I was the only Brit there, I was the only British person invited to this very high level conference. Why? Because European scientists think that we were, you know, they've had, they had lost respect for us because we. it was a disrespectful thing to the idea that we can do it better alone, absolutely moronic. So, you know, trying to build bridges between nations, trying to stop this petty nationalism, you know, starts st- stopping the sort of you know the rise of the the right wing. I mean, I, I find that really chilling, and, and it's mm. um well, if we can do something about it. I mean, one of my other interests, like, well, I, you know, I don't know if you know this, is, is the use of psychedelics to improve mental health, and mm. um you know they they do offer people a chance to think differently. Um, so uh, you know maybe in time we can start to to change that. But well, I I just I'm. I'm pessimistic for the future, to be honest. Unless, unless there is an explicit, articulated vision that the future's got to be together rather than separate. Yeah. yeah. No.
0: Well, I I think that's a that's a very noble aspiration. You know, it's the highest victory piece, right? And um, it's interesting you talk about the use of psychedelics because I think you want peace without, and you've got to start with peace within, um, and that's resolving a lot of the internal conflicts, right? That that exist. you 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 solve your own internal battles. And then you can have peace between and peace among, right? But a lot of it has to begin at a, a kind of a deep personal development
1: level. Yeah, um, and you'll be absolutely right. And of course, from a psychological perspective, so much hostility, so much anger, so much of, you hate the other is it's there, and it's engendered by politicians as well to yeah. avoid people confronting the truth about themselves. It's yeah. a, it's a it's a distraction, isn't it? Yeah. About a, a horrible and 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 perverse and and ultimately ultimately destructive distraction
0: yeah well we often don't like to look at the things that are most important for us to look at and uh, we look to escape ourselves alcohol is a very good way to do that <laughs> you know and Absolutely. there are many there are many others as well but ultimately i think it's important that we want to understand ourselves as individuals as a culture <clears throat> that we look at ourselves and we see what needs to be seen and um you know that's not all going to be light it's going to be darkness there as well but we we need to look at it all and we need to understand it uh, and, and keep our hearts open for the experience of others as well through that process yeah
1: totally yeah. totally
0: David, I want to thank you so much again. It's been wonderful to have the opportunity to, uh, to spend some time with you today. Tell us a little bit more, how people can find information about um, uh, the Sentia the products, uh, particularly if they want to order them around
1: this time of the year, and uh, you know, what, what's the best way to do that? Well, we have a website, sentiaspirits.com, or you can go on the Gabba Labs website. If you go on the Gabba Labs website, you can see a little video of me talking about the science and also see a little bit more about the other things, because Sentia is just the start. In fact, we have two essentials. We have the red and the black, and then we're going to have a, um, a more light one coming out uh, with the gold next year. And, uh, and we've also got some other innovations where we can, we can produce uh, little shots of our herbal drinks, which you're better put into non-alcoholic drinks like non-alcoholic beer or even non-alcoholic wine to, to give you a bit more of a feel and a mouthfeel as well. So, so there's a, it's, an, it's going to be exciting few years for us. Uh, and, and Do join us in that uh, adventure. Well, I'm personally looking very forward to it. I, as I said to you at the start, I have a
0: Yule feast planned for the uh, winter solstice on the 22nd. And the sentia is ready to break out uh, to all my guests. So really looking forward to that. Thank you once again, David. And uh, best of luck with all of your work in terms of um, you know what you're doing in the world today. And a uh, real pleasure to have the opportunity to talk to you today.
1: Thank you very much.